So what's uh, the word intention mean for you? Intention for me, great question. In this stage of my life means investing more time in my kids and, and I fail on a daily basis, but that's kind of front and center for me right now. I don't want to look back and you know, it, it, Saturday morning, I woke up and, uh, you know, we had some things on our agenda for the day. And um, my 10 year old son said, hey, can you go take us to the zoo? Take us to the zoo. Take us to the zoo. I have a five year old daughter and three year old son. And everything in me said no. But I was like, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's <laughs> go spend three it. hours at the zoo because I don't know how many more years my 10 year old son will uh, want to go with his younger siblings and meet to the zoo on a Saturday morning. So, you know, I think it's right now I'm trying to say as no to as many things as I can externally so that I can say yes to one of Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome back to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is your host, Ryan Tansom, and today is episode 267, and we're going to be talking about three ways to leverage franchising as a strategy from scaling up your current business as an investment asset class or starting your entrepreneurial journey on the third base. My guest today's name is John Olsenson, and he's literally the franchise guru. He has been on the show Bigger Pockets. He's been on EO Fire, and he is like the biggest proponent of non-food franchising. Because I think if we all think about franchising, we immediately think about Wendy's and McDonald's and Jimmy John's, but that's not what we're going to be talking about. And we're going to be talking about just a completely different way to think about franchising from those three different angles. So a little bit about John and his background is he's a consultant, investor, author, international speaker, specializing in specifically non-food franchising. And he is currently the CEO of FanBridge Consulting, where he helps place clients and understanding clients that are looking to invest in or buy franchises or franchise their own company. And he represents 300 high growth brands. Additionally, John oversees FanBridge Capital, where he and his partners own 17 territories across five property service franchises. He's also the author of Franchise Path and is a frequent contributor and thought leader for publications on the topic of franchising and franchise investments. And prior to FanBridge, John was the president of Shelf Genie, a national franchise system with 200 locations. And prior to that, he was an Accenture. And so he's been all over the place to land in this world of franchising and just dive so headfirst into it that he knows more about this, I swear, than anybody out there. And what I find so unique about John and after I got introduced to him uh, through a friend is that it's just a different way of looking at literally scaling your current company, using other people's money and how the economics work inside of scaling your own company, using a franchise and franchising your business. Also as an investment, if you think about investing into a business, the biggest question is, is it sustainable, predictable, and transferable cash flow? What are the systems and processes? And in essence, franchising already has a playbook, so you know how the businesses are getting run. And then if you think about if you're looking to buy a business, you're starting with a playbook. All in all, there's just so many different ways to look at it. And I love how John is just bringing this world of franchising and non-food franchising to a different level. And I think it's just something that everybody should just think about. It's not going to be right for everybody, but it's just a unique strategy that I think is worth uh, worth a discussion. Right before we get it kicked off, we have a new option to get the five intentional growth principle videos. So we created five videos that if you wanted to text 66866, text the word intentional. And I feel super corny even saying this, but it's going to be a super easy way for you to get five videos that where Pat and I walk through each of the five intentional growth principles with a two to five minute video that explains to you why the principle matters and then how to use the intentional growth vision board to actually fill it out so that way on one page you can say, here's how I want to clarify my path to a more valuable business and create that dream that you originally had so you can actually make progress. Again, text the word intentional to 66866. Without further ado, here's my interview with John and how to think about franchising as a unique strategy to grow your business, invest in, or start a business. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income 
to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Good morning, John. How are you? Hey, Ryan. Doing well. Happy to be here. Look forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. Uh, this is round two. So for the listeners in, we, we gave it a good old boy try the first time and we had technical difficulties and both you and I are familiar with podcasting. So we're like, you know what? <laughs> Let's just do it again. So I'm, I'm, I'm very excited for this conversation. Um, and I'm just going to let you kick it off in a little bit of your background, John, and how you got into franchising and why franchising. And then there's a lot of different angles we're going to take with this conversation. So I'm excited. But why don't you just give everybody the, the cliff note version of what you're doing and how you got here? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks again for having me. So my background, um, first off, I'm based in Atlanta, Georgia. I live here in the city with my wife and three young kids and uh, stay active and uh, always something fun going on. But background, spent most of my career in the corporate world, uh, did some international work and then um, went on to grad school. And uh, after that, had a great run, like so many in the corporate world, but had an itch. You know, I got to my mid 30s and wanted to do something a little more entrepreneurial and at the time, I defined that as moving from a public company to a private company uh, situation. So I had the opportunity to step in as president of Shelf Genie Franchise System. Uh, it's custom pull-out shelving for your kitchens and pantries uh, all around North America and had the opportunity to support our franchise owners, um, you know, all the different marketing aspects, the call center, technology, product development. And uh, really that experience showed me firsthand this world of entrepreneurship through franchising. And long story short, Ended up spinning off uh, with my business partner, and uh, who was the founder of uh, Shelf Genie, and uh, you know, and Shelf Genie has actually gone on to, to become a you know they were an Inc. Five Thousand company. They were recently sold to Neighborly. They had a big exit, wow. but Alan and I spun off, and we brought in another business partner, and we've now got investments in several franchises ourselves, primarily in the property services spaces where we've uh, placed placed our investments. But so you know, having been a franchisor, now multi-brand franchisee, you know, fortunately we've got good people running those businesses for us, and so it allows me to spend about ninety percent of my time on the consulting side. So I work with about three hundred franchise brands across the country, across a wide range of industries, largely in the non-food spaces, as I call it. What I find is oftentimes people associate fast food with franchising, and so <laughs> big piece of what I do. <laughs> big piece of what I do is get out there and educate. You know, like yourself, Ryan, we do a lot of speaking and. Uh, having conversations like this, helping people come to the realization that I did, that there's a world of opportunities that are oftentimes not on your radar. So uh, the way the way it works is when I engage with a client, I take them through a pretty streamlined process, present them with the opportunities, you know, six, seven, eight opportunities. We try and narrow it down to two to three to then actually engage with the franchisor. So we take the whole world and the whole universe out there, educate them some, and then uh, make it more manageable. And uh, you know, we, we do a lot of placements. And I just love what I do to play matchmaker. I love it. And so, you know, to kind of set some context too, because like when I, when I saw some of your material out there, you and I both know Elliot Holland, and then I saw that you were on bigger pockets and like the, the thing is what, what I think is relevant for the listeners in as before they're quick to judge a franchising, which is why you're here to kind of demystify some of this is that, you know, because of the wide variety of the listeners, you could be investing in franchises, you could franchise your own company to scale. And you could, instead of buying a business as an acquisition entrepreneur, you could go in and buy an, uh, an actual franchise to have a different take on it. So I think we're going to cover the the kind of the spectrum of the different angles. And so before we go into any of those particulars, John, like when you you do a huge uh, amount of effort behind non food, so why, why don't you explain that and like what is it like when you're talking franchises that are non food, and why did you get passionate about it? Yeah, so I, I'd say first, that was my experience. My background is in non-food. And I often say there, there are a lot of ways to make money and some are easier than others, some are cleaner than others. And um, <laughs> my my interests lie outside of food. And, and you know, really about 95% of my clients, you know, are, are looking at opportunities outside of food. They, they don't like certain aspects around it. And however, it's a great space in those 5% that do want to go for it. I mean, certainly a substantial part of the economy out there and, and it's growing especially coming out of COVID here. But no, we've, we cover a lot of other industries from, um, you know, I just did a 10 location oil change deal last week. Um, you know, in you know, so the automotive section had some uniques about it. Property services, home services have been absolutely on fire. Mm -hmm. 
you know, there are a lot of models out there around health and wellness, around B2B services, B2C services, um, just these massive categories that oftentimes are not, not on people's radars. In fact, I'd say over 80% of my clients end up in an opportunity that they had never heard of and was never on their radar, probably mm -hmm. in an industry they have no background in and had never considered. But once we peel back the onion and understand what they want their day-to-day -to, -day to look like, what their goals and objectives are, uh, what they enjoy doing, do they like small teams, do they like large teams? We're able to kind of match them up to the right opportunities that I see resonating with others around the country with similar profiles to them. So what I why did you get into franchising? And you know, like especially in, in the context behind the question is I don't know if you're familiar with Walker Diablo's friend they wrote yeah. Buy Them Build and like you know, with an SBA loan, you can go out and buy a lot of these small companies and or, you know, get some seller financing. A lot of a lot of people out there teaching this. Why franchising? Or what, like, what's your what's your passion behind that, especially coming from the corporate world and some of the consulting world with you kind of I think you had a, a better understanding of the opportunities. So, yeah. Why franchising? Yeah. Well, and I'd say why franchising? First off, it's it's not for everyone. You know, I, I have quite a few. I'm a member of the entrepreneurs organization. I know you're very familiar over there. You know, business owners that have built successful businesses would not be good franchisees. Now, some are. A lot of them are clients of mine, but some of them would not be. They wouldn't put their thumbprints all over a business. However, for so many others, they recognize that um, the franchising provides them with uh, some, some really big, big pieces that help them start on third base, not first base, if you will, uh, to sound cliche there. It, you know, the playbook, I mean, they, it's a proven model. It's worked in other markets. Then you've got a coach on the sidelines in that franchisor who has aligned interest uh, as you. And um, the better you do, the better they do. So they're providing that support. And then you've get, so you're in business for yourself, but not by yourself, as I like to say. Mm -hmm. Then you, oftentimes it's overlooked, but you've got franchise owners around the country that, um, or, or around the world that, you know, have tested some of those same marketing vehicles that you're considering. So maybe they've, you can learn from their mistakes or learn from their wins. And again, the better you do, the more valuable their location is as well. So again, it aligns those interests. You've got that support system and that network. In some cases, you are able to leverage buying power on the back end or leverage vendor relationships because you are buying in mass, let's say. So no, it's it, again, it's not right for everyone, but I think more and more people are wising up to, to what it provides. And you know, one other thing is the exit piece. I mean, you see private equity oftentimes buying at the franchisor level. I mean, two men in a truck was bought two weeks ago by Rourke. I mean, a lot mm -hmm. of deals happening. And I've got private equity firms calling me every day saying, hey, who are some of those emerging franchisors that we should have on our radar that you know would potentially have an interest? And so I'd say there's that piece, but also the franchisee level. In some cases, you know, private equity comes in and buys a large swath of franchisees, or they'll get bought, you know, come in and invest in the franchisor, and then they buy them back as corporate locations. And so the Riker School of Business, I, I, th I think this is really interesting, did a study over the past 10 years of over 2,000 companies across the U.S. in similar industries in which um, they had a, a franchise comparable and a non-franchise comparable, just a startup, if you will, traditional business. And what they found is that the franchise businesses traded a multiple of one and a half times the non-franchised uh, counterparts. And so hmm. obviously every instance is different and there's you know, different factors to go in, but by and large, you're able to benefit by building that asset and uh, having that exit. So, and, and this is why I'm super excited to talk about like the different layers of this, because I've got clients right now that are the franchisor. I've also got clients that are in the master level, which is in between the franchisor and the franchisee. And I've gotten, you know, a, a complete why the different perspective and education over the last year and a half on the different angles of this. And like, look, maybe we can just start with some of the mis miscommunity or uh, the miss behind it. Cause like, I've seen other people where like, you know, if they're the franchisee or master where it's very difficult for them to sell because they've got this, like, let's talk about like the, the, the narratives that go on. Someone's telling me what to do. I'm paying them a 5% royalty and they're not giving me anything. They they've got the first right of refusal in the sale of my company. And I built this whole thing up for someone else to have a lot of, a lot of say in my, in my ultimate end goal. So like, I'm sure you hear this all day long. Yeah. So I think uh, that's part of the vetting process that we do up front. I mean, we've already done a lot of the hard work. There's a world of 4,000 franchise brands in the U.S. Is that how many we've, there are? We, we've, and it's growing every day. Um, and, hmm. You know, you have some that failed and some come in. Um, but when you narrow that down to, you know, those without food, which is where I spend most of my time, food and lodging, you know, I play outside of that. And then we vet them even you know, further down. I mean, there's about 300 that we work with. And these are ones that, you know, I was down in Florida a few weeks ago with 150 of them. And 
you know, really digging under the covers for a week and, you know, understand what they've got going on and what's coming down the, down the chute. So, and they, you're talking about like the actual franchisor. So that way, if someone's coming in, you're, you're understanding, like, if I want to go and actually either invest or buy one, what the legitimate, you know, exactly. person on the other side of the table is like. Yeah. What's their unique proposition in the market? Where, where are they going from a growth standpoint? What's that track record? And I always tell my clients, you know, if that franchisor, you know, say it's an emerging brand, doesn't have prior franchise experience, they're just an industry uh, guy that, or gal, then it's important to me that they bring in franchise expertise from the outside to supplement, uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. their, their knowledge. Because franchising can be a different animal and you want to have franchisor that understands how to support franchisees they've got to be committed to innovation not just clip coupons on nothing (laughs) they've got to be committed to um you know to to really making that brand and that entity more valuable for you and uh they need to constantly be innovating i mean having been on franchisor side with shelf genie i kind of know what to look for and so Mm -hmm. i've got relationships with most of these franchisors i introduced to my clients because um ultimately that is the most important thing and you know yeah, everyone's going to have some story, just like you have some story of non-franchise businesses 100%. too. That you know, where there, there was a challenge and there was a unique situation, and maybe they didn't live within the bounds. I mean, any good franchisor is going to allow you to test things. They're going to allow you to innovate in your local market, and then if it works, you can you can bubble it up. So, well, they want the um, ideas, right? I mean, if they're like a if they're a normal you know good leader, and and you know, and I, I think the, the the purpose of the, just to clarify that wasn't my opinion. Because I hear the same stuff, John, about yeah. private equity firms. And what I say, yeah. if you've seen one private equity firm, you've seen one. And so like, same thing with ESOP, same thing with any of these concepts. And that's the whole point of this show is just like, let's break this down. And it'd be, again, because people can make intelligent decisions. And what I think is super interesting about franchising uh, that I've learned over the last 18 months is that, you know, the the big part that when I started this podcast five years ago is most people don't view their company like a financial asset and they don't have the professionalism behind it. And franchising, whether you're a franchisee or you're a franchisor, it forces that for everybody, which is just good for everybody. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and oftentimes that's what you see. I mean, in some cases, there like there's a business that I'm working with right now where they have a patented technology, you know, within that franchise system, which is their differentiator in their space. But Oftentimes it is, you know, let's say a fragmented space, maybe it's a blue collar industry um, and you're coming in, bring that professional approach. You're bringing in the technology, the marketing approach, and you're able to differentiate it. You know, a good example, there's a insulation business that's done 200 placements in the past 18 months. You know, it's just been on fire. I got Describe placement. Out. Sorry, describe placement. placement someone, and then keep, yeah. Oh, yeah, or deal, if you will. Someone buying okay. into a location. So, uh, you know, a new franchise owner coming on board. I got to know the owner, uh, Scott Marr, a couple of years ago. Great guy. He had built up the Fleet Clean franchise, had a big exit there, brought all that knowledge into what he saw as a highly fragmented space, the $52 billion insulation industry, built the brand, uh, oh, built out proprietary product, big old training facility, brought in in-house, you know, the marketing teams, call center. And uh, I mean, we've seen Harvard MBAs buying into this. I saw an MIT grad buying in. I mean, it's resonating with people that don't have any background in, in, in the trades. But they're viewing it as a business owner and stepping in. And so, you know, that's just an example. I mean, there's dozens of opportunities like that, again, in industries that, you know, you never thought you would be in. That's awesome. And and I, and I think, you know, what's interesting, the people that are listening that are looking to go on acquisitions too, because again, you know, the biggest question is if I'm going to go buy this company, where's the risk? What's going on? Is this cash flow like sustainable, predictable, and transferable? And you have to go through so much to identify with that versus, like you said, looking at the playbook and then looking, I mean, you just have a better understanding of what the due diligence is going to look like. So speak on the, speak to the franchisor level. What I find super intriguing, John, is that, so I got a, I got two clients that are, that have been, have chosen the franchisor route and like the ability to scale is really intriguing to me, especially when you think about if the non-franchise or route and the working capital and the investments that you need, most people like they run into problems with that. So that's why they end up looking for growth funding or private equity. But this is a whole different, like whole different playbook that I'm fairly intrigued by. So, you know, explain like why someone would and what are the benefits? Absolutely. No, we see businesses and, and models that you would never have thought could be franchised that make a lot of sense when you kind of boil it down. Now, I'm helping a number of companies now through that process. I, I don't personally take them through the FDD setup and all that, but I've got great resources to do and that, that I point them over towards. But no, a lot of the conversations I have with business owners are, you know, is franchising right for your business? Is that the best way to scale? So, you know, first let's start with the cons. You know, what I share with them is, you know, you wake up one day and all of a sudden you've got 
it's great that you've scaled the business, but you've got kids all around the country that now have expectations of you and <laughs> you're trying to keep the kids happy, try and get them, you know, playing nice together. And of course they're always griping about some vendor that you're bringing in from the outside. So, you know, it does definitely change your day to day, you know, especially if you don't have any background in it. Again, I would encourage you to bring in an outsourced sales team, bring in some other franchise expertise, but on the positive side, you know, you're, you're, you're always wanting employees to act as owners, right? Well, now all of a sudden you do have truly true owners around the country that know their local market, that have skin in the game. They're largely using their own money to, to fund the business. And so you're not having to come out of pocket for as much. And, uh, but, you know, but you're, you're providing support to them day in, day out. Again, from an exit standpoint, you know, you're, you are able to scale faster and probably larger and private equity just inherently loves franchising. You know, I, I get calls, like I said, all the time. They love the oftentimes, you know, predictable revenue model. They love the, um, the fact that you can scale using other people's money and, or SBA, the, you know, government's money in that case. And so there's a lot of intrinsic factors. And, and so we do see more and more businesses raising their hands saying, hey, should I consider franchising? And uh, I can just cite case study after case study of that. Well, and let, let's, uh, I don't know if you got a one that we can pull the thread on because I, I think it is truly intriguing because, and, and we don't, don't shy away from technical details here because like when I think about like if someone wants to open up a new market, like, and then this will tie this back on why franchising loves it because of the value that's there. But like, so I've got a business and then I'm going, okay, I want to open up a new market or I want to, you know, in that case, I'd have to find a, a GM or someone that's expensive. I'd have to fund the inventory and then the payroll and then the location. And that's a lot of working capital. Most people are going, where do I get that? Which is why I've had people on the show talking about non-controlled capital because of you know the, the challenges and the constraints of financing. But you're getting a lot of these like so explain like literally how someone would roll that out because and how someone uses someone else's someone else's money and how you would monetize like a different location if you were to franchise. Yeah, absolutely. So so let's take I'll take my one of my partners' companies. Uh, a guy named Alan Young. He has a business called Art of Drawers, very similar to Shelf Genie with some nuances. I love these names, by the way, <laughs> Art of Drawers and Shelf Genie. <laughs> I just love it's it. It's great. It is great. It's good stuff. So in his case, you know, he, he's got the production set up on the back and he's got the manufacturing. Obviously, the more that he orders, the more, you know, of these wooden boxes, the better pricing he gets. So he gets that bulk rate. And so, you know, one strategy he can go with, you know, currently based in Atlanta would be, let's go open a, another market in Nashville. Let's go open one in Charlotte. It could go the corporate route, which you know, he may do. I mean, right now he's thinking about it doesn't make sense to franchise. Or he can um, take the business and, uh, you know, out of the gate. Hey, we have a successful prototype here in Atlanta. Here's the reasons why we believe it's successful. Here's how we're going to support our franchisees on the marketing side with our marketing team. You know, maybe you provide them with a call center or do that, do that down the road where they're able to book appointments. Uh, we're handling all the production. We've got technology systems. You're able to go in, approve your orders, you know, watch the order through the process. We're, we're tracking all of your marketing spend, getting the ROI, you know, all those little pieces behind it, you know, really making it a valuable proposition versus someone, you know, let's say someone in Dallas buys into it. Well, what value are they getting beyond the brand, beyond the production? It's going to be all this additional support uh, that, that the franchisor is signing up to in that FDD, the franchise disclosure document, you know, which is regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. So you've got to cross your T's, dot your I's. I mean, the government looks out mm -hmm. for small business owners. Uh, but it's it's saying, here's the expectations you can have when you buy into our system. Here's how we're going to support you. Here's kind of what you can expect to make. It's called the item 19 of you know from a financial standpoint. So, you know, they roll that out. Say the, the guy opens up in Dallas, you know, buys into the franchise. Oftentimes franchise fee for the first location is 49000 Just seems to be the magic number. Next location <laughs> might be thirty nine. Next one might be twenty nine. And so, you know, that could be defined as 300,000 in population, 50,000 homes of 75,000 income and above, you know, lots of, lots of different ways, number of addressable businesses, if it's a B2B type business. Uh, of course, if it's brick and mortar, then it would be, you know, maybe a three mile radius around your location. Mm -hmm. So anyway, let's say the Dallas guy buys into three territories, starts marketing in one, and then over time opens up those other territories. Uh, on his revenue, he's probably paying, give or take, right around 6% of revenue back to the franchisor as royalty. Mm-hmm. However, you know, what support is he getting for that? Here's the list of things that he's getting. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he's getting coaching and operational support, all of that as well. And so he builds out that business. You know, the franchise owner or the franchisor here in Atlanta, my partner, Alan, yeah, he makes some money on the franchise fee. And that guy pays 49 plus another 39 plus another 29 However, a lot of that gets eaten up as a sales and marketing expense because he's probably paying someone like myself, a consultant, to mm -hmm. go out there and market it and sell it for him. 
Um, and so you're not going to get rich as a franchisor off of your franchise fee. Yeah, you're not sitting there drooling over the 200 grand. I mean, because you're paying operation expenses and whatever to roll it all out. Well, and, and I'd say your first couple of franchise owners, those royalties are largely paying to keep the lights on back at the home office. You pay your marketing pay team, pay your support team. Now, over time, once you get that critical mass, the royalties can really add up. But in the case, you know, for him, you know, here, here with that business, where he makes his money is on the markup he takes on the manufacturing or on the supply chain piece of it. So he's producing it for $20. He's charging the franchise owner $40. Franchise owner is charging uh, the client $200, you know, because it's part of a solution. They're not looking at it as a wooden box. It's part, you know, it's, it's customized. Well, those manufacturers can have one sale to like everybody. <laughs> Exactly. So there's a lot of synergies, that one-to-many relationship. But, you know, when Shelf Genie went through their transaction, I guarantee you what was most attractive from a P&L standpoint was the markup that they took on the manufacturing piece. That's just how it works. It's so always tell new franchisors, let's figure out how you're going to make the money. Um, obviously, the exit down the road can be very, very attractive. But along the way, it's the markups that you take. And it could be on, on the marketing you provide. You may say, hey, we're going to have, you know, charge you an extra 2% of all of your revenue you know, to pay for the marketing and take a markup on that. So it's that vertical integration piece where you can really do well on the franchise or side. So many things there that I want to unpack is like, well, like, so a couple of things. Well, when I, one thing that I think is interesting when like when someone has the shift in mindset, we're like, Hey, I'm going to build a machine that kicks out cash, commercial cleaning, or whether it's a professional services consulting company or a manufacturer that is a drawer, you know, tool and die shop. If they've truly gone to the through the effort to go, okay, this is a machine. I want to build normalized EBITDA that is sustainable, predictable, and transferable. They're thinking about it like a financial asset. They've they've done the hard work to do what you're talking about, John, which is standardized operations, standardize your hiring process, standardized sales and marketing, standardized finance and legal. Like, so you become good at a business versus creating or doing something. And so then the big question that, that I see is people go, then how do I scale this to increase my EBITDA, increase my multiple? And you, what you're talking about is using other people's money. And think about like, like I just did some basic math. You're like, you're clipping coupons on the 6%. So you're actually monetizing your ability to build a business, not just have a widget. And then you're talking about the vertical integration too. I can only imagine the normalized EBITDA of a franchisor and the system is extremely nice to look at. <laughs> it can be, it can be, you know, but like any business, I mean, it doesn't always work out. I mean, you know, you look at the franchisee side, you know, I mean, there's stats out there to show, you know, 75, 80% of franchise purchases do work out. Of course, you know, the numbers on non-franchise. So, you know, it's not a totally fail proof. I mean, still it comes down to people. In fact, th that's one of the things I used to tell shelf genie franchisees when they would come through our pro training process was, you know, they would say, gosh, you guys do this for us. You do this for us. You know, what do we do on a day-to-day -day basis? And I always explain your success. is going to come down to your ability to work with people. It's your ability to attract and hire quality talent to be able to retain and incentivize them and, and make tough calls when needed. But ultimately, that is the key skill set really across all businesses. And, you know, we see some people going into that owner-operator role. Sometimes they may start out without an employee. In a lot of cases, you know, we're working with semi-absentee investor types that quite a few of those out there that, that say, hey, I'd love to see, you know, I think of franchising as an asset class. You know, that's a conversation that we mm -hmm. oftentimes have and, you know, looking to diversify. And they, um, you know, but they, I tell them it's going to come down to having a good general manager to run that day-to-day -day for you. And you may have to cycle through two or three of those. I mean, that's kind of the, the pain point, you know, is that, as a business owner, there's always whack-a-mole. I'd say right now when I look <laughs> at the landscape out there, it is... Yeah. And there is so much customer demand, you know, but it's the labor side. It's finding good people and being able to plug them in. So I do have a lot of clients right now that say, what's the highest ROI I can make with the fewest employees? You know, that's kind of how they're looking at things. But, you know, franchising in general, I mean, right now we're seeing, I don't know if I'd call it a renaissance, but it's pretty close to a renaissance. I mean, our mm -hmm. deal flow year over year is well over 50%. And last year during COVID was 50% over the previous year. I really think, and you, you see this firsthand, Ryan, you know, outside of franchising as well. I think COVID's caused a lot of people to question the path they're on and say, maybe mm -hmm. now's that time to scratch the, the entrepreneurial mm -hmm. itch and, mm -hmm. and jump in the game. So um, it's a lot of fun. It's all, also really competitive. Great brands are going fast in, in, in markets. That's awesome. Well, and I think what's interesting, and in, in you make a really good point too, because when I was talking about building the machine and being the franchisor versus being the franchisee, we're like, it's about the people. What I think is, 
With it, it, and again, it's all depends on what angle you're talking about. Are you talk, are you trying to be a franchisee or a franchisor? And like, there are so many people that I've come across where like, you know, I, I just really love the people, but I just don't like the business stuff. And that, 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 that could be a, an indicator of like, hey, I might want to be a franchisee where this is a business in a box. And then I can actually focus on my people, not building the machines, the operations and the systems, the press. So it's, a, it's really very, it's, it's, it's more clear on what side you should be on, depending on what you gravitate towards, which I think is interesting. When you, when you talk about how, like if you're a franchisee, well, and this is for both sides. If you're the franchisor and, and a franchisee wants to sell what they've built. So let's say you like someone was super successful in the marketplace. How do they deal with the their, their franchisees selling? And if you're a franchisee, what are the pros and cons limitations? And like, how does how does the bottom part that that second layer, how does the the turnover of the the not the turnover, but the transitions and the exits work? Yeah, you know, you put yourself in the seat of the franchisor and you've got a franchisee in, in Phoenix that wants to sell and, you know, maybe they're retiring, maybe they're moving, maybe they've had an illness, maybe the business isn't, you know, what they hoped it would be. Um, you know, you do approve that sale, but ultimately, unless someone's bringing someone in that's like totally out of bounds, way off the tracks and, you know, <laughs> in most cases, they'll approve that. I mean, there's got to be really a red flag. I'd say they're looking more for those reasons why why they shouldn't approve them, then reasons to approve them. And especially if that franchisee has been in good standing and you know, has built that relationship with the franchisor and it's an understandable reason and, and they're not going to get out and start bad-mouthing the franchisor. I mean, as long as you're playing nice, then it, then it really doesn't pose an issue in most cases. And the franchisor will then take you know that new franchisee through training. Um, they want to make sure that they're totally up to speed and you know, they'll typically, prior to that, go through the same discovery process. Um, so I'd say we don't run into that being an issue too often. Which is super, yeah, no, no, which is good, to, good to hear. And like, I, so like when you talk about private equity getting into this, cause like the, the, when I think about, you know, institutional investors or professional investors, I mean, when you have someone else that's got the first right of refusal and you're going in and you're buying something and I mean, that, that, that is potential risk depending on how knowable it is. And, and over the last 18 months, as I've gotten more familiar with this space, if it's a noble risk, then you just, it's maybe not even a risk at all. It's just now you understand it. So like, how are people viewing that? And like, when you say that franchising is an asset class, I mean, are you seeing more funds flow this direction or like, what's your thoughts on it? Yeah. If, if, on your second question first, I mean, we have record levels of cash sitting on the sidelines, stock markets at an all time high interest rates are low, only so many good real estate deals really to be had out there. And so people right. are looking for those alternatives, even outside of Bitcoin and I think baseball cards have been making <laughs> NFTs, <comeback>. man. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. So, you know, people are investing in hard assets, but you know, also, with knowing what's on the horizon, I mean, inflation and taxes, let's be honest, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. both are going to be going up in time. And, you know, I, I do think business ownership, as many of your listeners would agree with, is one of the last bastions of tax beneficial strategies, you know, that could be employed. I also think, you know, with, in the case of inflation, I mean, you can raise your prices. I mean, we, we did that for one 100%. of our businesses. You know, we, we've got a couple of, you know, our, our home cleaning business, our pool cleaning business. We raise prices, you know, because we're having to pay more on the labor side and, you know, by and large, I, you know, our customers were pretty receptive because of how we positioned it. That hey, for us to get good, talented people to come, yeah, you and want service, you, you want good people. That you, are know, we, you know, we, you know, we're going to keep putting good people out there, but we have to pay them, and everyone understands those macro factors. So, science hits on that. But no, as far as the right of refusal, I mean, again, I, I haven't come into to too many issues. A lot of my clients are buying into multiple franchises too, and so you know, we talk about franchising as a diversity, a diverse strategy, but also within franchising. I've got a client the other day, he's, he's the largest franchisee of two men in a truck moving service. He operates in 11, 12 markets now. Uh, and, you know, young guy, 39 years old, he and I did a couple of placements together last year, um, you know, in totally dissimilar industries from where he's been, but he's built this organization. He puts young guys in, in these le uh, leadership roles, gives them a ton of responsibility, a little bit of equity and says, you know, go make it happen. You know, you're talking about franchise or, or franchisee. Oftentimes we see those being one in the same. You know, I just mm. did a, uh, you know, a very large placement between Atlanta and Charlotte um, with some guys and they're in the process of franchising their flooring business right now. Hmm. They also own a property management business. You know, these guys are in their mid thirties. I mean, they, they, these aren't yeah, that's awesome. always seasoned gray hairs. You know, I've probably got gray hair more than, than, than half of my <laughs> clients. And yeah, we also see, you know, I was talking with um, a client of mine yesterday. He's a CEO, former CEO of multiple hospital systems, you know, 63 years old. He 
tried to retire and now he's saying, Hey, I, I kind of miss the, uh, I've been consulting, but I want to get back in the game. I miss the employee and customer yeah. interaction. So uh, we do see it come from all walks of life. We've done some deals with guys and, and I keep saying guys, but guy, you know, guys and gals in their twenties, uh, you know, thirties, forties, fifties, it's really across the board. It, it is so interesting. Cause I, uh, there, um, I don't know who it is uh, here in the Twin Cities, but I think there's a big family office that owns like 240 Dairy Queens. And it's just like, and I, I talked to someone like, yeah, you would have no idea how much those Dairy Queens make. And you're like, well, technically you could have, like if you truly, you could have a whole diversified portfolio of just different franchises from food to like home services to you could like almost recession proof your portfolio through franchises. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I talked to a franchisor yesterday. I'm going to invest in a, uh, it's an artificial intelligence driven patented technology in the waste management industry. Hmm. And what I think I joked on, on a recent podcast episode, you know, non sexy is the new sexy now. People love hmm. these spaces, whether it be, you know, dumpsters, whether it be, uh, you know, <laughs> carpet cleaning. They, they love those types of businesses right now. And we're still doing deals for like IV drips and, you know, mm -hmm. other concepts that I would define as sexy, but, but a lot of, a lot of pull towards, in some cases, uh, Amazon resistant or COVID resistant essential services, you know, the SERP pros of the world are doing great. Um, mm -hmm. I've done a couple of placements with those guys. Well, it's uh, like, I mean, if I see another article about another company that's going public that hasn't make, made money and has no intention of making money, and then you go over and you're like, wait, that garbage dump, you know, dumpster company kicks out $4 million in EBITDA. We're like, okay, well, I guess I can get done with that. Yeah. I mean, it's just a whole different perspective, right? And what I found is people, it is a different perspective, and people like going to the cocktail party now and being, you know, the, the hey, the, there are those folks that uh, you know, own the porta potty business, but they live in the biggest house in the neighborhood, you know? <laughs> Uh, you literally just summed up one of my best friends from college. He goes, he, they own a porta potty business, no joke, and a rental business. And we were golfing, and he, he, we, we, we go by the porta potty, and he goes, "Smell that? <laughs> smells like money." I'm like, "Your guy." And he was a CPA too, so he went from like yeah. busy season to putting on car hearts and, and boots, and so it's so it. it's so I interesting. It. What what are the reasons someone wouldn't want to be a franchisee or franchisor? Like, I mean, what are the things that you go, okay, that's an easy indicator that it's not right for you? Yeah. I mean, this is, it sounds like a weird problem to have, but I mean, on the franchisor side, some are sitting on so much cash, you know, it just makes sense to go open corporate locations himself. I mean, obviously even within the realms of franchising, I mean, you still have more control if you don't have franchise owners within. And so maybe it's, uh, it's just that long-term strategy on the franchisee side. You know, again, piece of what I do is educate. Uh, you know, I find just conversation after conversation every day. People, say, you know, people are saying, I always thought of franchising as food. You know, I didn't know these other industries existed. So I think the reason uh, you don't see even more jumping in is just the the lack of awareness. And so that's something I'm trying to change as a disciple of uh, franchising mm -hmm. out there is just, you know, it's not right for everyone, but at least explore it. And uh, yeah. you know, it's a great, great basis for comparison. I've got plenty of clients that, uh, you know, go with Walker's uh, direction of you know, entrepreneurship through acquisition. You know, some of them will ultimately end up doing a franchise deal. Some will, you know, buy, buy the traditional business. I will say oftentimes clients come to me after going down that path and saying, you know, once, you know, sounded great. But once we pulled back the covers and really understood what owner discretionary means in the P&L and trying to piece it together, mm -hmm. it wasn't quite what we thought it would be. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, even within franchising, I mean, we do resales. I'm doing a five-location resale right now in Atlanta for uh, It's a uh, STEM-related business called Code Ninjas. It's coding and technology training and development for kids. I mean, who doesn't want that, especially coming out of COVID? Um, right. And people right. are investing their kids. They'll invest in their pets. They'll invest in their homes. So, you know, obviously, we have an aging population. Where Where is the putt going? And where do we, you know, how do we skate towards mm -hmm. it? And, mm -hmm. and those macro factors come into a lot of our conversations. So... Um, explain some of the resources like that are available. And I know you're playing a lot in this space, but like I was, uh, I was shocked when I, one of my clients, um, a while ago, they're like, Hey, yeah. So now if I wanted to franchise, there's people that'll go out there and help me get a franchise in each, each marketplace. So like, I mean, there's people that are out there where you don't have to do all this on your own. So kind of walk us through like the different kind of components and the resources that are out there for the people that might not be aware of it. Yeah. And first off, I'd say I am more than happy to jump on a call with uh, with any of your listeners. You know, I love having these conversations, talking with, you know, it's entirely free. I mean, whether you're on the franchisee side, 
you know, I, I get paid by the uh, by the franchisors on back end sales and marketing costs. None of it gets passed on to my clients, so entirely free. Hmm. Same thing on the franchisor side. I don't personally take clients through the franchising process to franchise their business. However, I love talking to them about whether it makes sense. And then I've got great resources, multiple groups that can really do a soup to nuts approach. So, you know, a big thing is getting your FDD, your franchise disclosure document done. That's big, intimidating 200 page document. Uh, <laughs> totally written in your favor, though, as a franchisor. You know, but a franchise attorney can do that. However, you know, the, the, there's uh, a group that I work with oftentimes that, uh, you know, will do the FDD. They'll also, you know, put together your, your marketing collateral materials, your operations manual, your training manual, everything you need to kind of go out there and start selling franchises, like what the expectations are mm-hmm. you know, from a candidate. And then they'll also, to your point, if you're interested, go out there and help you sell the franchises. You know, they'll they'll get you in the, the national publications of franchise magazines. They'll get you you know, at the franchise expos around the country and go and represent you. Um, you know, it's pretty turnkey. It's, it's neat what all they've kind of put in together in a box. Right. It's, it's very franchise-like, you know, here, you want to franchise <laughs> your business, yeah, here's, exactly. here's the magic <laughs> box. But, you know, just some guys with great experience behind them, you know, many years of franchise experience that would say, hey, don't reinvent the wheel, learn from us, you know, let's get you uh, started and This is a percentage of, of, like, if they close a deal, it's just a, a commission, right? Just on launching the marketplace or something like that? Uh, for those guys, so yeah. if, to do all of that, I, I believe it's well, I'm sure it's probably a little bit fifty thousand okay. dollars, and, and there's groups that, that will do a good bit of that and charge you twice as much. And so we've kind of worked out an arrangement there. Again, happy to share that with people. But you know, and then then your choice is: do you want them to go sell franchises for you? Uh, you know, some of the groups, Franchise Fastlane, Fran Devco, Brand One, I mean, these groups will rep them. They'll go out there and actually. Um, you know, represent you essentially as your sales teams. They're like an extension mm-hmm. of your team. They get to know you extremely well. And then I uh, go out there and, and do that time-consuming task of qualifying and validating right. candidates and telling them the story, walk them through the FDD, some of those initial steps. You still get to meet them. You still get to decide if you want to let them into your franchise system. But by them cutting out those first couple of steps that are so time-consuming, it really sets you up for success and allows you to then focus on those new franchise owners and supporting them and getting them off to a good start. So that's something I always encourage emerging franchisors to look into is outsourcing your sales early on. Well, and like what, what I find just so unique, John, about all this with, with working with just just hundreds and hundreds of businesses, like people have, it's very unique to find someone that understands everything about a business, how to scale it, how to deploy it, how to like, you know, play the entire Wizard of Oz and th- this world allows you to figure out where you play the best and then supplement around it for not like, and you don't have to sell your soul, right? I mean, you don't have to like get out. I mean, it's just, it's a lot more flexibility than I think, truly more flexibility than I think most people think. They probably are thinking the opposite where there's less flexibility, but it's really not the case at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's having that key prototype, that business that's been successful that, you know, Oftentimes, success leaves clues. You probably had other people saying, "Hey, can we go open locations?" You know, we love what you're doing. You know, that positive feedback, and, and then it's just, uh, you know, franchising can be a strategy to to consider for scaling. Uh, a lot of businesses are doing it. A lot of you. You've talked about a lot of people investing in franchises. So, like, if you want to be like, if you like the game, but you don't want to go, you know, let's say because there's people on the show or listening to the show that have sold. And now have a yep. chunk of money. And again, put it in the stock market at all time highs or go buy treasuries at 0.05% rate of return. <laughs> like, so like this is an interesting way to deploy your money, kind of get to participate in the day to day, maybe get that. I think a lot of people, John, like they want to be valued for their expertise in the 40, 50 years of experience they might have had. So when you're thinking about investing in this kind of place, what are the avenues and how does it work and how like and the degree of passive versus active? Yeah, you know, I always try to be very candid with clients of mine, and they come in and say they want passive. Well, unless you have someone ready to go on your end, I mean, there's not a true passive. I mean, semi-passive. If you think it's going to take 10 hours a week, it's probably going to take 15, you know, especially early on. So, but, you know, a good example here, uh, a friend of mine, you know, sitting on a pile of cash, uh, we had an opportunity. It was a resale uh, for a fitness um, uh, facility in the Southeast, and you know, he was interested in a great model, all the reasons as to why, you know, it made sense, but he wanted nothing to do with the day-to-day operations. So fortunately, I had another client who was in need of capital, yet he was the number one trainer in the Lifetime Fitness 
train, oh, you know, cool. nationwide for two straight years. And so it's a beautiful marriage when I put the two right. of them together and they worked out a 5149 agreement. You know, one that I did recently, I, I'm doing a lot of beta testing where I'm placing investments. Personally, it was a driveway repair franchise. I love this little business. I've placed a lot of clients with them. <laughs> and uh, one of my clients uh, said, hey, would you invest in, in me? And, uh, you know, I'd love to have you just kind of on the sidelines as a coach, you know, won't take much of your time. And so we structured a 5149 relationship. He's 51. I want to be the minority. That's my desire. And uh, letting him totally call the shots. But I've been able to open some doors, you know, within the Rolodex, you know, for him. And, you know, it was so funny. And this is a great example. He, probably second week in business, he, he calls me up and says, hey, John, the phone's not ringing. I'm really nervous. I've never done this before. <laughs> I said, hang in there. Next week, he calls up. He says, hey, phone won't stop ringing, but I, I can't get to all these appointments. Next week, he calls up, you know. I'm running a lot of these appointments, but I'm not closing them. Next week, he calls up, you know, I'm, I'm closing too many. Out 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 it's, just like, <laughs> it's just a perfect entrepreneurship uh, you know, story of uh, you know, what we see on a regular basis. And what I think is super intriguing about being an investor like this. So like, you know, a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs that have had a liquidation event or they have a desire to deploy their money towards something that they understand versus, you know, just watching Amazon and Apple go up. And the big question is then I don't want to bear the responsibility of teaching them everything about it. So this is, again, you're kind of mitigating that risk as an investor because you're going, there's a playbook, whether it's shelf genie, like you said, or drawer, what was the drawers, <laughs> any of these companies that you're talking about, there's like, here's how it works. There's some support going on. And so you're kind of, and the reason I'm bringing this up, John, is because you just very casually said, oh, my desire is to be a minority stake. I do not have that many people out of hundreds of interviews that go, I, oh, I sold, I liquidated, and now I'm going to invest and I can't wait to have a more minority stake. They're going, no, I have to have a majority because most people don't know what they're doing and there's no playbook. Hey, my philosophy is I'd rather have a small piece of a big nut than a big piece of a small nut. You know, I, want, I want the incentives there. Um, you know, I mean, I think you're in the same position. I mean, what we have now, we, we have limited time and we have little excess capital. Um, and we have a lot of connections and we're trying to be as wise and judicious about each one. I mean, the opportunity, the franchise org called me up this morning about a neat opportunity he wanted me to, to be a part of. And I said, I love it. I'll be a part of it, but I can't put in any time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe a few hours here at the beginning, but I can't do it. it that is with three young kids. You know, I know you understand, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, have to be, guard my time. And, uh, you know, fortunately, fortunately I do. I'm passionate about what I do. I love helping people. I could tell success story after success story. And granted, there are a few that haven't worked out, but by and large, I mean, in the last couple of weeks, I've had multiple clients coming back, buying additional locations because they've had success with the first couple that they bought. And Super. to me, that's great validation of what I do. And I love seeing the success. So as we're getting close to wrapping up here, like what is, what is the most, like over the next 18 months, especially with, like you'd mentioned, all the different things going on. What are the things that you're most excited for in this space? Most excited for, you know, what gets me really excited is some of the business models that I see coming down the tracks. They're in the process of franchising right now. Just some great ones that really, I think are going to have wide appeal. Ones that I think hmm. we can go and blow out, you know, and overnight. Um, and uh, so I'd say that piece, the client piece, I love helping people. Um, it, it really is a lot of fun when I see that life change. And I see that people leave and oftentimes leaving the corporate world and finding that freedom that, uh, you know, that I found back in the day uh, mm -hmm. in the not so distant past. You know, on the personal side, uh, you know, I was number two in, in the FCC last year for FCC's largest franchise brokerage in the U S I, I was number two in deals and, uh, want to be number one so that's I was gonna say I feel like I was gonna say I feel like you don't want to be number two well I just just kind of going on gut here <laughs> yeah so so we're, we're plowing ahead but no things are good it's an exciting time to be in the space and uh, I, I just love educating love opening up people's eyes to what the opportunities are whether or not they're the right ones at least they know for comparison what's out there seems like an interesting mechanisms and strategy to help with this baby boomer transition plan that's going to go on. And because the reason I say that, and I don't know if you've seen any of the, the macroeconomic trends, but uh, and the U S census will come out now to show, but like 95% of all privately held companies are below 5 million in revenue, which you just go, you boil down to the numbers. And a lot of people talk about this $10 trillion wealth transfer. I'm like, well, these, when you boil down the wealth transfer in that, you pay taxes and the lower multiples and pay off your debt. I'm like, there's not as much wealth there. There's a lot of jobs, but this could be an interesting mechanism to like help facilitate that where it benefits both, both parties. 
Yeah. And, and I think for, you know, oftentimes people think franchising or non-franchising, but oftentimes there's a combination. So you go in, you buy one of these businesses for a couple million dollars and you see the opportunity to scale it through franchising, even though that mm -hmm. hasn't been a piece of the DNA in the past. So I think that's a really unique approach that mm -hmm. someone can take that kind of marries the two. Mm -hmm. So uh, two final questions as we're wrapping up here. I love asking people what the word intentional means to them because uh, the, the, the answers are wonderful and it's the name of the show. So what's uh, the word intentional mean for you? Intention for me, great question. In this stage of my life means investing more time in my kids and, and I fail on a daily basis, but that's kind of front and center for me right now. I don't want to look back and, you know, it, it, Saturday morning I woke up and, uh, you know, we had some things on our agenda for the day and um, my 10-year-old son said, hey, can you go take us to the zoo, take us to the zoo, take us to the zoo. I have a five-year-old daughter and three-year-old son. And everything in me said no, but I was like, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go <laughs> spend three it. hours at the zoo because I don't know how many more years my 10 year old son will uh, want to go with his younger siblings and meet to the zoo on a Saturday morning. So, you know, I think it's it, right now I'm trying to say as no to as many things as I can externally so that I can say yes to what matters. Oh, I like that a lot. The book Essentialism is fantastic. Yeah, it's a whole a book. One. It's a whole book about how to say no. I, I read it and I don't practice it as well as I should, but it's a good one. Um, if people want to find you, reach out for questions, what, what, what are the places to find you? Yeah, again, happy to jump on a brief call and, and talk through anything uh, you'd like to related to franchising. Um, I, I'm sure it'll be in the show notes, but you know, come to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com. That's F-R-A-N, bridgeconsulting.com. Uh, email me at john, J-O-N, at franbridgeconsulting.com. You know, connect with me on LinkedIn. You know, we'll, we'll get you on our email list. And uh, like I said, would love to jump on a call when the time is right. John, this has been a blast, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it, my friend. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope that we have officially demystified franchising for you because I think that there are a lot of people that just think about Wendy's, Taco Bell, or Jimmy John's. But when you really start to think if you've built a machine for your company, there might be an opportunity to scale it using other people's money so you're not having to you know, either bring on investors or how to to limit your growth by franchising a business because you've created a machine that kicks out cash and has a certain playbook that is repeatable. And I also think about just like the just like interesting characteristics of investing and especially investing in small businesses, which I, I know a lot of people that listen into this show like to do because we're all familiar with businesses and we all start to understand more about what creates a more valuable business. We naturally want to invest into other people's businesses because of the opportunity to, to create wealth. And for a franchise, you could literally invest in a company that you know how the playbook works because of the standards that are applied to that brand. And when John talks about the 300 brands that he represents, I mean, there are 300 brands that he has gone out and vetted out and they are, they're good companies. So just an interesting strategy that I don't think a lot of people had thought about and either had I prior to meeting John. And then if you're going to look out and look at jumping into the world of it being an entrepreneur, first of all, I recommend Gino Wickman's book, Entrepreneurial Leap. But I also think about how hard it is. And if you want to start on third base, you know, looking at a franchise that is in the area of interest of yours or is some sort of infrastructure that you can start on third base. Also, just think about the implications of making sure that you have the ability to sell that franchise when the time comes and that you're creating value for something that you can harvest long term. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed the show and I hope you learned a couple things because I sure did. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.